Great Patient One Chapter 26 Read by Achan Suchito and Nick Scott After walking through the Royal Chitwan National Park, our two pilgrims have caught a bus onwards to Hetaura, from where they have to climb into the Himalayan foothills again to reach Kathmandu. Chapter 26 The Play of Creation Achen Suchito April 3rd and another shift in the play. Her contact in Etora was another Bajrachari, a friend of Chatraraj, whom he described as a second Anata Pindika. Maharatana, great jewel, Bhadracharya, was as renowned for his largesse as for his skills as a businessman, and Chatraraj was sure that even without his note we will be well taken care of. He will only be disappointed that there are just two of you, he said. He has a whole apartment block to accommodate bhikkhus in, and had apparently done so for visiting entourages. Well, he'd have to make do with one bhikkhu and a bedraggled layman. We didn't even need the note to find Mr. Badracharya's shop. Wandering along the main street of Hitora, I plumped for the best house and shop front, that of a goldsmith. But before we could approach the door, someone ushered us in. Maharatna Badracharya was obviously an important man in the town. The shop interior extended back away into increasingly sacrosanct zones. The fragrance of incense welcomed us, and my ear focused and lingered on the steady tones of someone chanting softly. Beneath a small collection of paintings of Vajrayana sages and protective deities, an old man was working at his small gold worker's anvil with a delicate hammer. The gold work was fine, exquisite. Tiny flakes shaped and assembled nose rings like miniature chrysanthemum blossoms. Other anvils were the crucibles for slender gold wire to be transmuted into rings. There was a mood of calm and a kind of sanctity of attention that you would associate with a monastery where manuscripts were being illuminated. Perhaps it was that in a way. The handful of people working were all male. Perhaps it was a descendant from the old Nevari Viharas, an echo of the era when the Vajracharyas of old had moved out of their purely monastic role into first ritual and then commercial functions. Mr. Vajracharya soon appeared on the scene, was definitely no throwback. I've met successful Buddhist businessmen like him from Thailand and Sri Lanka, well, but not extravagantly dressed, with a modest amount of gold on the fingers. Composed, with confidence that worldly success breeds and requires, yet easily respectful with bhikkhus. Tall and comfortably built, he drew us into his inner room, a sanctum behind a wrought iron grill, 
and with an effortless wave of one hand made soft drinks appear. The women folk peered through the grill into our male world where, through seating arrangements, distance and tone of voice, the subtle balance of mutual respect and self-confidence was established. Strangely enough, Mr B had no English, but Hindi was good enough to manage the comparatively minor matter of verbal exchange. Talk on Dhamma revealed that he was a meditator and had received teachings from Mr Goenka, himself a former businessman. However, business was calling and there was much to do. Tomorrow he was going to Darjeeling, so the elder son, Jyoti, would be taking over as host. We stayed a couple of nights in the three-storey apartment block nearby, with Nick sick and resting most of the time. Mr B's sons and I meditated together, and they showed me around the family home with its array of religious paintings from Thailand and tankas from Tibet, as well as Newari art and beautifully worked bronzes and some magnificent Buddha images. It was a splendid display the images of awakening in all their subtle and well-crafted forms, far more graceful than the flesh and blood practice of liberation. Even after a full day's rest, Nick was far from his usual buoyant self. Of course, he thought he was ready, and our next destination, Bimpedi, was only 23 kilometres away on what seemed to be an undemanding route. The first few kilometres out of Itora, we were on a main road, it seemed easy enough, and by mid-morning we had reached a turn-off to Bimpedi, a rock-strewn dirt track. It had been the main porter's trail, cutting across the mountains and getting to Kathmandu after 45 kilometres. It was our obvious route. The motor road wound around the mountains for 130 kilometres before arriving at the capital. The dirt track took the heavily laden porters only two days. However, knowing the ways of the goddess, I wasn't making any plans. And sure enough, the wind went out of Nick's sails shortly after leaving the road. His flags were down. Rather fittingly, he'd lost his love and power hat somewhere, and by the time the heat turned up in the late morning, he was reduced to wearing a pair of underpants on his head for some shelter. After another half an hour or so, I looked around to see he'd lost those too. We pulled up before midday at the top of a small rise where a banyan and a bodhi tree shaded a small shrine. Nick went over and down like a wrecked galleon. I got him to eat a bit and drink the milk that Jyoti had given us. There was nothing else to do but sit here, find the central point and meditate. It was pleasant under that tree, with my awareness extending to taking Nick, the cool shady shrine, and the river flowing beneath us, and where we were going, and where we had been. Then it rested in where we were, in where we are. Suffering, origin, cessation, path the trembling of having somewhere to go, and what if tugged at my mind. 
but Nick's inertia pointed like a compass needle back to the present. There, the radiant Buddha was turning the wheel of the law, and in his hands, the goddess of suffering, so lavishly worshipped with our views and ambitions, unveiled her loving face. Compassion, be that, that's all we're here for. Momentarily, the wrappings of time and place unpeeled. The shade moved around the shrine. Eventually Nick began to surface, haul himself up, make a few noises, and we were struggling off in the heat of the afternoon, struggling up that rocky trail, that ancient path, him with his head down and me up front, turning from time to time to watch him and worry about how far it would be. But where was there to get to anyway? In geographical terms, the end that we had agreed on, the final peak, was the valley, the Kathmandu Valley. The route from Tanzen to Chitwan had progressively, through a hundred ups and a hundred and one downs, rubbed down the 1,300 metres to a mere remnant of altitude. And from Hetora to the valley itself, we were toiling through 101 ups and 100 downs to arrive back at that 1,300 metre mark at another valley. That seemed to sum up the inner journey too. It felt like a deep return to some basic inner ground a shift out of the play of ups and downs achieved through a process of wearing out the reactions to highs, lows, beginnings and endings, and even arrival. Maybe the result was a kind of dispassion towards it all. And yes, I guess we were getting pretty near to that. Still, there remained a lingering mystique to the pilgrimage. Its notional end was at the most sacred shrine of the Kathmandu Valley, Swayambunat, the self-originated. To the ordinary eye, Swayambu is an impressive stupa on top of a hill. It is also an emblem in a myth that makes the valley sacred. In the myth, that self-originated was a timeless presence that dwelt in a vast lake, immeasurably enriching its waters. Swayambu was the very essence of Buddhahood, unpeeled from any form. And countless eons ago, Vipassi Buddha, one of that lineage of conquerors of whom Gautama was the last and Maitreya the next, came to circumambulate the lake in reverence. Into its still waters he cast the seed, a lotus seed that would, he prophesied, bloom into a flower that would be a seat for that supreme essence. And as eons came and went and Buddhas arose and passed away in the human realm, that seed blossomed into the Bodhi Mandala, the circle that is the place of awakening in the world of form. Then the Bodhisattva Manjushri, the wisest of all those who vowed to share awakening with all sentient beings, came from the north, mounted on his snow lion. 
with the Vajra sword that cuts through all delusion, he sliced through the hills that surround the lake, allowing the sacred waters to flow out and bless the land. And the radiant presence of the self originated, too powerful for profane eyes to gaze upon, was capped and crowned by a hill. On that hill, kings built a shrine long ago, before history could record it, to serve as an image of that mandala. The stupa is too sacred, too alive, to allow archaeologists to go digging for history beneath its shell. It has in time nevertheless developed and formed, like Buddhism itself, arising out of something that can't be traced to become a metaphor and a way to the trackless state. The shrine to Swayambu was wrecked, of course, by Muslim raiders, but being dependent on a still vital religion, it was able to arise again. High and lofty, it overlooks Kathmandu, shaping and being gradually shaped by the cultural genius of the Nevars. So the pilgrimage had to have its conclusion there, at Swayambu, in that valley that is as high as a mountain. Meanwhile, I was wondering how Nick was getting on ascending his own mountain. Late in the afternoon we did arrive at Bimpedi, but immediately after that the peaks and some tough climbing began. Yet even though he'd barely been able to drag himself up a gently sloping path for most of the day, the cooling of the late afternoon, the sense of arrived in a lovely old town, and some time unwinding over a cold soft drink, made the mood of the moment positive. Therefore, to his mind, everything was possible again. So he had to be talked out of attempting the climb that very evening. At least that was getting easier. We didn't polarise with such intensity anymore. At times, I could even experience this as a comic duo, bouncing lines and gestures off each other, and surely no one could better throw all my stock attitudes so vividly into relief as Nick. The unflagging optimism, the almost pathological overreaching, and the ability to shrug off the last disaster with a casual remark. Compared with him, I've been a stranger at a funeral for most of my life. Someone is not certain who they should be mourning, but who doesn't want to get it wrong by acting loud. For someone endowed with Nick's self-confidence, experiences of limitation and inadequacy must have been more effective steps on the inner path than successes. His progress was more a matter of descent. And this turn of the journey seemed to be providing him with plenty of those. Our host in Bimpedi, M.D. Shrestha, a friend of the Great Jewel, counselled that the climb out of the town was a strenuous one. And the next morning we found out he wasn't exaggerating. For me, it was just a matter of a steady grind uphill. First gear work, with occasional pauses to relieve the pounding heart. And a few more to allow Nick to catch up and sink down. By then, I had already been initiated into the company of those who feel they can barely make it but pausing now and then to wait for my struggling companion, 
I wondered how well he could adapt to the change of role. Nick Scott That climb, it was the hardest I've ever done. The dysentery left me with nothing. My legs felt like matchsticks covered in a thin layer of something insubstantial that definitely was not muscle. I felt faint just contemplating each upward step. All I wanted to do was sit down for the whole climb. We set out from the village guided by Tresta, and as we crossed the valley, I didn't feel that bad. Weak, yes, and listlessly uninterested in the landscape, but I'd known that many times on the walk when dysentery had struck, and I'd always managed to walk on. But then I'd never had to make a Himalayan climb. Thresta told us it would take one and a half hours, and that we would be over it and down to Kulikani in time to eat. The hill was a wall of green turf, dotted with trees and crisscrossed with slight ledges made by grazing animals. We were to go straight up and join a jeep track at the distant top, even the first few steps were hard, but I kept on going as I didn't want to worry him, still in sight on the valley's far side. As soon as we got behind the first tree, I stopped, just to get enough breath to tell Ajahn Suchito how difficult I was finding it. There was one good thing about our bouts of dysentery. The two of us never had them at the same time, which always left one of us to keep the pilgrimage going. You might feel like death and only want to curl up in a brain-dead ball, but you were still capable of hanging on to your companion's motivation and could stumble along after him. This time, Ajahn Chito even ended up carrying my bag, as I had trouble enough just getting my body up the face of that hill. I couldn't even glance at the steep slope above. All I could do was focus on the next step. Raise the leg and put it up there. Now somehow get my body up above it. Raise the next leg. No stopping. And somehow raise... Yeah. Each time I stopped, I would look up to see Ajahn Suchito standing waiting, with a look of concern for my next step. It was that damn rule on not eating after noon again. I'm certain the Buddha never meant us to be ruled by the minute and second hands of watches. But that is how it was, and I had to keep going if we were going to get to Kulikane in time for both of us to eat. And I did so want to eat. I'd kept nothing of the breakfast, and I wanted something that would give me some energy, even if it lasted only 15 minutes before I had to run to the bushes. I've looked at that hill on maps, and it is a 2,000 foot ascent. That's no doodle, even when you're feeling fit and well. Somehow I did eventually make it to the top, and with only half a dozen stops. But it was terribly slow going. Once there, I could walk at a more reasonable pace on the flat. I could even take in the beauty of the forest we were passing through. A mixture of evergreen oaks, other hardwood trees and the occasional tall, upright conifer, with rhododendrons hanging from crags. 
But even though I could then use the weight of gravity to stumble quickly down the other side, we had little time left for finding a meal. Ahead of us, an English-speaking local we'd briefly met further back on the track disappeared into a house. It was a run-down shop-come-drinking den with a couple of old signs for spirits in the window and a few odd jars of things for sale inside. Arjun Suchito thought it an inappropriate place for us to stop. But the only other building in sight was a large concrete dam in the valley bottom with a small hydroelectric plant and there was no time left for looking further. Inside the shop, the English speaker got the owner to make us rice, dal and vegetables, while he drank chang, barley beer, and when he saw how few vegetables the shop could produce, he gave us some tomatoes he was carrying. My body miraculously hung on to that meal eaten in Kulikani. There were flies crawling across it, the crockery was dirty, and the food oily and hot with chilli but I suppose the body knew it had no choice. It gave me the energy to climb up a long cliff on the other side of the valley to Kulikani proper. The village was just half a dozen houses on a flat ledge of land, an old river terrace now suspended above and between the two valleys. The valleys joined below it and dropped away so steeply that we could see no bottom. The diary, more poetically, has valleys as deep as bazoons. We were in the Mahabharat Lek again. Most of it was covered in forest, and for the first time I noticed how it was distinctly zoned, with conifers becoming more frequently the further up I looked. Around the village I recognised plants from home. Brambles were just coming into flower. Then in the grass turf beside the path there were violets, clover and forget-me-nots and best of all, bird's-eye primrose, one of my favourites from the hills of northern England. We were high enough in the mountains now to be in a zone with a similar climate. In the next valley, we disturbed two iridescent male jungle fowl, with their dun-coloured hens scratching on the path ahead. They dashed off into the bushes as we got close. Later, I had a brief glimpse through the trees, of the even more exotic-looking college pheasant. These steep slopes in the foothills of the Himalayas are the last sanctuary for many of these species of jungle fowl. Elsewhere, they've been hunted to extinction. My mind turned, as usual, to the need to protect such wonderful remnants of natural habitat. The main argument put forward to save the remaining forests in the Himalayan foothills is an economic one. The clearing of the forests has resulted in an increase in landslides and the erosion of topsoil, so that the big rivers issuing from the mountains have become ever heavier with silt. The plumes of darkness in satellite photographs spreading out into the Indian Ocean at the Bay of Bengal are the eroded soils of Nepal. The erosion is also responsible for the regular flooding in Bangladesh, and the resulting human misery. I understand why conservationists use such economic arguments to save habitats, as they have more sway than trying to protect the last home of a strange pheasant. But for those of us that find solace in nature, just the cutting down of these last pristine forests 
can cause so much heartache. I used to respond to such issues when I let myself look at them, either with despair and pain or with anger, but most of the time I would just bury myself in action. It was difficult to find the right perspective. I once used to fantasize about somehow getting rid of 99% of the world's population so that the wildlife could recover. But that would be the worst genocide in history. And it wouldn't work. People would just multiply again. Of course, I excluded anyone I might know or have met, anyone I recognised as another being like me. Others, particularly in religious and New Age movements, seem to want false hope, a magic formula that will save the planet. Now I've learned to simply accept the way things are. As well as being more peaceful, I found I was more able to do something when it was possible. I'd have the clarity to be able to understand what motivated others. Then I couldn't get angry with them, let alone want to kill them all. And understanding the other point of view helps sometimes to get things changed. That night in Nepal we were awakened by a few of the world's multitude that I once wanted to kill. They were walking the path in the darkness with flashlights, returning from drinking at an inn, I suspect, and stumbled upon us lying by a stream. They wanted to help and offered us accommodation, but when we refused and said we were happy where we were, they accepted it easily and went on their way, their voices echoing back up the valley. Up until our climb towards Kathmandu, we've been passing through the majority Hindu culture of much of the foothills. The peoples there originate from a series of migrations from the plains of India in response to periods of persecution. But we were now climbing into the east-central area of Nepal, where most of the people are of Tibeto-Burman descent, and often Buddhist. These tribes migrated in waves from Southeast Asia, starting in the early millennia BC. The Niwas are supposed to have originally been such a tribe long, long ago. That day we climbed up to a village of one of the tribes that have come more recently. We knew they weren't Hindu because we could see the Buddhist Chaltons up on the pass we were making for. Stones piled up to make a crude stupa, supporting fluttering Buddhist prayer flags atop long bamboo poles. It was hard going that morning. The path wound in and out of small side valleys and up, down and around the sides of steep slopes, hardly getting any nearer, until, at last, we came to the long climb to the past. I had hoped that if the people ahead were Buddhist, they might recognise Ajahn Suchito as a monk, take us in and feed us. The village on the other side of the pass did have a Buddhist temple with ornate Vajrayana Buddhist icons on the shrine, and the people were probably Tamang, one of the more recent Tibeto-Burman tribes who settled in the hills around Kathmandu. But it didn't help. A Theravadan monk registers no response in their culture. From there the walking was easy. There was a real road again, winding down and around the hillside to a wide valley below, awash with bright green paddy fields, with the small town of Parping reachable in time to buy food. We'd arrived at last, 
at an outpost of the Kathmandu Valley. In Parping, as well as the bustle of a small modern town with the first cars, buses and lorries since Hetura, we also found the other main constituent of Nepal's human population, the Tibetans. There always were Tibetan tribes in the high mountain valleys of Nepal, such as those in the small, once independent Tibetan kingdoms, Dolpo, Mustang and the kingdom of the Sherpas. But now there are far, far more. Many of the one and a half million Tibetan refugees who fled Chinese communist rule have ended up in Nepal, and Parping turned out to be quite a centre for them. Two large Tibetan monasteries sat on the side of the hill, looming over the town, one of which we stopped in to pay our respects to the shrine. As we walked into town, half of the shops seemed to be run by Tibetans, and there were young monks everywhere, hanging out on the street corners, listening to rock music on a transistor radio, and sharing a Pepsi in the cafe we ate in. Some of them smiled in our direction, nodding in recognition. At something Buddhist, or just our novelty, I couldn't say. The group of young monks who directed us to the cafe seemed particularly taken with us, and smiled profusely. But beside me, Ajahn Suchito didn't respond. I had the sense he didn't approve of all this very umbiku-like behaviour. Achen Suchito April 5th Not much food in the mountains. Eating is a valley thing. For me, it was perhaps the only thing I liked about parping. All the razzmatazz was definitely not my scene. But then we came around the last slope before the valley, and it was all change. I felt a trace of the impression that the mountain men and the heavily laden porters must have had when they saw it. The landscape, as it slowly opened to the north before us, was a sweeping sea of green, with terraced hills rising out of it, and settlements strewn over it like foam. To the east, the land faded out of sight in the warm haze, but directly ahead of us lay the urban area of Kathmandu, and its neighbouring city of Pattan, also known as Lalitpur, the city of sacred play. Swayambunat rose to the west of them. Even in this age, with cars and concrete buildings in evidence, the perception of Shangri-La still hovered in my mind. Our approach was slow and in stages like an initiation into the fertility of life. The first stop was a Hindu temple built into an overhanging rock face that was lush with nasturtiums and ferns. The main images indicated that the temple was dedicated to Vishnu, here called Narayan, the life affirmer. Many smaller images of erotic play grinned down from its walls, with the innocence of children playing with their bodies, a Shangri-La version of sexuality. After that, we came into the populated areas. We had the address of Naga Mandap Shri Kirti Vihara in Kirtipur, a small town southwest of Kathmandu. So we thought to head further down the road to there, 
take a rest, and collect ourselves before Swambunat. After a while, following some questions and gestures, we left the road and made our way across the paddy fields to one of the small hills that carried the towns and villages of the valley. The town was a few quietly winding streets lined with brick houses, occasional courtyards with stupas in them, children playing, no traffic, and carrying water or squatting at their endless patient tasks, bright-faced women whose heads were not shrouded by the hood of their saris, and there was gentle laughter at these two awkwardly tall strangers. The temple was not an easy find. It was over to the extreme east of the town, looking down a slope over the fields. We came across it after trailing a cat's cradle of long looping streets that passed us round and round and up and down, making our knees go to jelly before they would allow us to arrive. They were living, dancing streets with shrines in their navels. People flowing along them participated in their play by passing the shrines respectfully on their right, occasionally pausing for a prayer, or to offer flowers, or to daub the holy images with pigment. Some shrines, like those bearing an image of Ganesh, were obviously Hindu. Others, of the peculiar Newari Buddhist iconography that was reminiscent of the images from Nalandar that we had seen in Vaishali and Patna museums. After the vast skies and massive simplicity of the mountains, the intricately sculpted work of the shrines was mind-seizing, and they were just a part of the whole. Beautifully carved wooden window frames gazed down into lanes and courtyards that were open but still intimate. A warm human vitality defined the way in which the town wound itself around the hill. Fed by sacred imagery, the streets were like living blood vessels linking the various levels of public and private human life with the land and with each other. With the mind feeling that rhythm and the body going numb, it was difficult to attend to where we were going. Venerable Sudarshan Mahatera greeted us at the Vihara. He was quick and acute, speaking good English and attending promptly to our needs, whilst overseeing everything else at the Vihara. We stayed with him for a couple of days, soaking up his information on Kirtipur and Buddhism in Nepal. City of Glory was the translation of his name. It had been one of the last of the Mullah city-states to hold out against the evading Gurkhas in the 1760s. But Priti Narayan Shah, the first of the Gurkha monarchs, conquered it in the end after a long and desperate siege. Afterwards, some folk called it Naskatipur, city of cut noses, for in retribution for Prithvi's brother losing an eye in the siege, the conqueror ordered that all the adult males of Kurtipur have their noses and lips cut off. All except the musicians. Even the mountain men had a taste for the constant artistry of the Newars. Looking at Kurtipur and how its human creation so allowed for and connected the moods of home, market and temple, culture took on a new meaning. Art has a way of making life manageable, 
It creates connections that help the mind to move through difficult or intangible themes. And the Vihara itself presented a synthesis. The roof of its temple building, which our living quarters overlooked, was capped with four large images of Lumbini, Bodhagaya, Sarnat and Kushinagar. How pilgrimage in a nutshell, placed up there at the bequest of the Sangharaja of Nepal. It all looked so small, like child's play from where we were standing. Hardly worth writing a book about. Nick Scott It was at the Kirtipur Vihara that I was really struck with how modern and western the Theravada tradition in Nepal was. It was partially the facilities at the Vihara. I particularly appreciated the well-kept western-style bathroom as my dysentery returned with a vengeance. But it wasn't just the Vihara that was modern and western. Bunty's outlook was a modern Western one too. His way of thinking was rational and scientific, a bit like a modern Christian minister who gives rational explanations for all Christ's miracles. This outlook was something I'd noticed about the other Nawars we'd met and suspected it was why they were following Theravadan Buddhism and were so dismissive of the old Vajrayana tradition of their people. It was striking how they were all the educated members of their caste. They explained their change of allegiance in terms of wanting to revitalise their Buddhist religion. But if that was the only reason, they could have turned to the more dynamic and close-by Tibetan Buddhism. But that was still too esoteric. It was ironic, really. They were rejecting the old ways because they were irrational, just when many Westerners were showing such interest in Vajrayana Buddhist teachings, often because it was esoteric and non-rational. Not me, though. It was Tibetan Buddhism that I originally encountered, when I was twenty, in my wanderings along the base of the Himalayas, but I'd been put off by it being so irrational, as I too had a modern rational outlook then. I was in Sikkim, a small and at that time independent state between Nepal and Bhutan, and had stopped at a large new Tibetan monastery, simply because a local had said I should. I was put in a small accommodation block, next door to a young Canadian Tibetan monk, also visiting, who came to tell me that I'd been invited for an audience with the Kamapa, and that he was to translate for me. I had no idea who the Kamapa was, or that he was the head of one of the largest Tibetan Buddhist sects, the Kagyu. To me, when I met him, he just seemed a large and jolly chap prone to guffaws of laughter while rocking about on the bed in his private apartment. I remember something about banknotes and laughing at the pictures on them, and him insisting I had to come to a ceremony the next morning, which a wealthy Tibetan had travelled a long way to sponsor. I now realise the banknotes must have been a subtle hint, but it was lost on me at the time. 
So I ended up in a large temple, with myself and the Tibetan sponsor sitting alone at the front, flanked by rows of monks. Before us was the Kamapa, raised on a throne and surrounded by silk cushions. The chanting seemed to go on forever, deep and resonating. It washed around the dimly lit hall, the rhythm kept by the monks tapping small hand drums. Amidst the chanting were occasional deep bassoon-like blasts from a long trumpet, the ringing of a bell and the clash of cymbals from a monk just to my right. The monks, dressed in maroon and with peaked hats on, were all following books of long strips of loose paper, which they turned as they chanted. The Kamapa led, starting each chant with a deep growl, then, as he chanted, rocking gently from side to side to the rhythm, like one of those round-bottomed dolls that never fall over. Each chant ended with him stopping suddenly, the rest of the monks' voices then slowing and trailing off, as if someone had pulled a plug on them. The ceremony seemed to be leading to a crescendo. The chanting was getting faster, becoming more insistent, there was more ringing of bells and clashing of cymbals, and then two monks came from stage left with a silk-wrapped box, which they started to unwrap. The chanting and accompanying clashes and clangs got even louder, and then the Kamapa took his hat off and handed it to one of the monks. The lid to the box was gently removed, and from inside he lifted, ever so carefully, a large black furry hat with gold trimmings that he gently placed on his head, all the while keeping one podgy-armed hand atop it. This appeared to be the peak of the ceremony. The Tibetan beside me was prostrate by now, and the hullabaloo from the monks was at its loudest. After what I suppose was five minutes, the hat was put away, the box rewrapped, the chanting subsided, and eventually the whole thing came to an end. At the time, I had absolutely no idea what it was all about. It was six months later that I found out. I'd arrived in Darjeeling to stay with an English couple who insisted I come that day to a ceremony the visiting Kamapa was about to perform. The explanation came out on our way there. Thousands of Tibetans, very auspicious, hardly ever done before outside of Tibet. Black hat ceremony. Sure enough, the hillside was crowded with a sea of Tibetan faces, sprinkled with a few western ones, and the monks had already started on the initial chanting. They and the Kamapa on his high cushioned throne were under a large tented canopy in front of me. We were now mingling with the edge of the crowd, and my friends were whispering to me, This is very, very auspicious. The hat is magic. Given to the first Kamapa in the 15th century, a gift from the Emperor of China. If he takes his hand off, it flies. At the time, it just made me dismiss the whole of Tibetan Buddhism. But these days, I've more respect for the irrational, despite having been trained as a scientist. If I hold on to the Western and scientific explanation for everything, I miss something very important. 
the feeling of awe that comes when I stop trying to explain this world. I can now see that I was trapped in that Western world description, which is in fact no more true than any other. Darwinian evolution is a very useful description of this world. But that is all it is, a description, and not reality. Eventually, on the spiritual path, we have to let go of all descriptions, including Buddhist ones. For their part, the Niwa Buddhists were weighed down by the beliefs and superstitions of their old Vajrayanan religion. The accounts of their culture in books is fascinating stuff, and not just for anthropologists, but it's now very hard to use it for spiritual endeavour. That's why they've turned away from it. We left Kirtipur the next day for Swayabunat. Bunty had offered us a lift into Kathmandu, but I wanted to walk. This would be the last few miles of the pilgrimage, and even if I was feeling both sick and weak, I wanted to do it on foot. The two of us trudged down a wide tarmac road, bustling with traffic, cars, motor scooters, the occasional bus, and many Nepalese on foot or bicycle. Most of the men were in traditional dress, with a flattened pillbox hat and wrapped in a light blanket over short dark jacket and jodhpur-like white trousers. We left the road at one point and crossed the paddy fields on a well-worn path. The city of Kathmandu was ahead, Swayabunat to its left, and another town to our right that must have been Patan, and there were several main roads in sight full of traffic. But the background was the wide valley of paddy fields, rising and falling in waves of bright green. The contours were created by several rivers that wound through the fields, two of which we crossed by old bridges. Round it all was the ring of mountains, with the paddy fields lapping their lower slopes, scrub above them, and then further up, dark green forests that rose in jagged formations to the sky. This exceptionally wide valley would once have been a large lake, dammed by glacial moraines, which then silted up with sediment from those surrounding mountains until one day the water was released. Was that caused by a seismic quake, or just the Bagmati River eroding into the moraine? Or was it Manjushri and his sword, as local legend has it? Does it really matter? I was certainly not in a state to say. I was far too light-headed. It was quite pleasant as long as I didn't focus on anything. We had only a few miles to go, and I could amble along in a daze, enjoying the warmth of the afternoon sun and the changing impressions of our surroundings. We went through part of Kathmandu. I remember modern suburbs and leafy green gardens, and then the central old town of elaborately carved wooden temples and crowded, bustling streets. We then arrived at a house where we'd been invited for the meal, much of which I wasn't up to eating. Then we were heading out on the road to Swayabunat, up on the hill ahead. Ajahn Suchito wanted to do the final climb in one go, as a devotional exercise, which did seem right in my vacant, accepting state. 
It was just that I couldn't physically manage it. The wide stone steps led steeply upwards between walls with trees overhanging. Looking up, the walls narrowed in the distance to a small gap that I assured myself must be the top. I climbed slowly yet steadily, but the world began to swim around me. My chest ached and tightened, and I gave in just before I fainted, sitting down suddenly on the step where I was. It took two more goes before I got to the top, long after Ajahn Suchito, my last steps on jelly legs, accompanied by some devotional singing drifting down from above. And then somehow I was there, white light, giant golden eyes, tinkling bells, a mesmerizing devotional drone, elaborate fretted woodwork, strange people, musicians, monks, tourists, monkeys, and way below, a little world of miniature houses, small green fields, and tiny people. My mind was well past trying to explain any of it, but it could open out into a tremendous feeling of awe. Achen Suchito It was a long climb up the steps to the self-originated, but I had enough mountain madness to keep going. That morning we'd arrived at another meal offering, by women as usual, and another connection. Sister Upalavana, a middle-aged Nepalese nun, bowed to greet us with excited smiles. We called her Chini, sugar, as her friends did. She was a friend, and a special one, too, of Sister Maidanandi at Amrawaddi. Sister Maidanandi, originally from Canada, had been working for a United Nations Nutrition Project in Nepal when she met Chini. It didn't take long after that before she was leaving her job and heading for Burma to take ordination as a ten-precept nun. And while we had been struggling up our lonely hillsides, Medanandi had contacted Chini, who in the midst of the bustle of Venerable Sudarshan arriving and people trying to find room as they squeezed through the low doorway into the room, invited us to her house in Patan on Thursday, four days in the future. It was lovely to enter the heart of the valley by my home monastery, Amrawati, the deathless realm, and somehow... The sense of being received strikes a different chord when it comes through the feminine, like being welcomed back to bodily life. It always seems to be the women who are nourishing that sense of belonging, that bodily birth. Birth may be dukkha, but a good one is essential. Without that sense of belonging here, without being at ease with what one is as a person, it's hard for the mind to have the foundation for realising the unborn one unconsciously uses the Buddha's realisation of non-self to lose touch with the realities of body and mind. Maybe what my journey and sickness had been about was a drastic wake-up call to care for this reality, whoever 
or whatever it belonged to. Yes, the real challenge for a celibate bhikkhu is that if he can't rely on a relationship with a woman to provide him with a sense of being cared for, can he now be his own nourisher? Can he be self-born? The Buddha's remedy was to urge an inward blossoming of the seed of the Dhamma. However, from what I've seen, not everyone is born in a rich enough soil. And even if a skillful cultivator can do it for himself, can we make our presence on this planet something that lifts others out of their lost dark spaces? What can an individual do to share his or her life with other people? In Nawa land, the men of the valley use the synthesizing medium of art. Perhaps a man's social duty, his gesture of connectedness in the society, has to be to give birth to works that will give it meaning. For me, my work is pilgrim's work. It's not about getting anywhere, let alone to the top. It's about being more fully here and working out the tangles of being me. It's about presenting myself to that demanding practice in an act of flesh and blood devotion. So who was I climbing Swambu for? Nick dropped out somewhere along the way. There was no one to keep up with. My mother, my father, they're dead memories now. For the Sangha? Was it for them, those mind-bursting steps? Did I go on this pilgrimage for them? But so many of them have gone too, disrobed since I came back intended to share my journey with them. Pabakaro, Anando, Kittisaro, Santajito, Nyanaviro, and many more. We were mountain men. We had sat knee to knee in meditation, we had built monasteries together. And now we're looking for the green valley in separate realms. Of course, as I tell myself, it's not fair to expect everyone to follow the monastic form. What counts is authenticity, each to their own. And many of them are bringing the Dhamma across to others in lay life. But sometimes fellowship feels like a continually breaking circle to me. And I wonder who am I doing this for? Beggars squatting on the steps, a few coins on cloths in front of them, hardly moved as I staggered breathlessly by. It's funny how long you can put energy into an illusion. Sometimes it takes exhaustion to clear the mind. What can we ever bring back from our journeys anyway? How many travellers return to find that their friends have died, their lands ruined, her tail is derided. When will we ever know that we never return? That we have to close our own circle by willingly embracing the suffering of separation. And at the top, I made it to the top without stopping, was the great shrine with Buddhas smiling gently through the mist of my flickering attention and calming the pounding of my heart. Buddhas of all the directions, Vajra thunderbolts, prayer wheels. But I hardly remember even that consummate impression. Homage to them always. But no, it wasn't even for the Buddhas, this long haul. 
one of the milling throng of tourists, coke in hand, wanted to take a photograph of me. I laughed. It was all for him. Somewhere on the planet, maybe, a man has a photograph of a Theravada Buddhist monk whose face is spread open in an enormous grin. Buddhism must make you happy, he thinks. And so it does. So it does. Buddhism does indeed make you happy at the end of a long stretch from which only images return. Keep that image to inspire and encourage you, friend. For me, it's enough to know I have found myself in the mandala. I was there, now I'm here. Even if no one can hear this, this closes the circle of the pilgrimage for me. I've come to the end of regret. <laughs>